Can we? There we go. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Pastor is not here. He checked himself into the ER last night. Um, got back from California Thursday night pretty late. Heart was giving him some issues. Wasn't great on Friday and just got bad enough he took himself to the ER and was so kind to let all of his kids know after he'd been sitting there for over an hour. Um, so he is, they did admit him last night. They're checking. Um, they, they've basically ruled out that it's a heart problem. They've done CAT scans, EKGs, blood work, the whole nine yards. His heart is good. So they're checking for possibly a pinched nerve in his neck that may be radiating issues down into his heart. And then he asked them to check for pancreatitis because it's similar symptoms to when he had that last time. So they were running a blood panel and a couple of other tests this morning. So please keep him in your prayers. Uh, not sure when he'll be coming home, um, but just again, keep him in your prayers and just... Pray that the doctors will find an answer this time around so he can actually move forward and get this behind him as best as possible. Um, obviously, it's a weird day. It's, uh, the snow looks like it stopped, even though they keep... I just checked the weather forecast. They've extended it till 2, but it's not here anymore. So, weird morning. So, I'd love to have a job where you can be wrong most of the time, like politicians, be fun. Anyways, that's not what we're here for this morning. Let's pray and we'll jump right into Sunday school. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you do for us. Lord, thank you for keeping us safe on our way to church this morning. There are still those coming in that will be here for the morning service. Lord, I'm asking you to keep them safe as they journey in. Uh, just help us as we open the word of God, not just here, but in all the different Sunday school classes across the building. Uh, give each of the teachers wisdom and uh, just help us to learn something from your word this morning. And bless the service that's coming to follow that. And just, again, keep us safe as we head home afterwards. And bless Pastor. Give the doctors wisdom. Thank you for good doctors that are willing to take the time and effort to find answers. And just help them to find some answers for him today. And he's not the only one. We've got a lot of folks coming in and out of the hospital, getting tests done. We've got surgeries coming up. Lord, we're asking you to bless our church and bless our families. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A uh, couple of quick announcements before we jump in. Uh, volleyball is again at Tuesday night. If you are interested in coming and watching, it's also live streamed. We'd love to have you come join us. Um, soul winning at 10 o'clock on Saturdays as well as 345 on uh, Friday afternoons. Uh, if you are interested in either one of those dates, you can uh, times you can come see either myself or uh, when he's back, Pastor Bish. We'd love to have you join us for that. And then Wednesday night, uh, Bible study and patch club again is at 7 o'clock. We would love to have you here. Other than that, I think we're hoping and praying this is going to be a normal week. We haven't had one of those since the start of the school year. Just to give you a weird idea, Monday, we knew Pastor was out all week in California, so I was filling in Pastor's Bible class. Miss Rogers got sick, got this 24-hour stomach bug that's been floating around. So I knew she was going to be out, and because she texted me first, Brother Rob tried to show up for school that day. And about 15 minutes into his first class, I get a knock on my door, and he's gray. I need to go home. Okay. I taught four classes for three class hours in a row by myself. Those kids didn't learn anything. It was so bad. It was just, and then Tuesday was mildly better. Wednesday was worse. Thursday was mildly better. Friday was worse. <sighs> 2022 can end, and we can just jump right to 2023 and just get over all of this. It'd be great. All right. Uh, we're in the book of Esther chapter 8. We're going to try to finish an entire chapter today. Not sure if that's going to happen or not, but we're going to try. Esther chapter 8. We are going to be paying very close attention to the time. The roads look relatively clear right now, but again, 
We've been watching the weather forecast off and on all morning. Just want to make sure everybody is kept safe. Esther chapter 8. This is where everything kind of comes to a head in the book of Esther. If we go back just one, one verse, actually, Esther chapter 7, verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. So the king, it uses the word wrath, he's beyond angry here, hangs Mordecai, or hangs Haman on this gallows. And if you remember correctly from earlier in this study, this gallows is roughly 75 feet tall. To give you an idea, the average gallows that was used when hanging was still a form of capital punishment in the United States was between 10 and 15 feet tall. This would have been about the same height as our bell tower. That's really high. Okay? Um, in even just a 10 to 15 foot gallows, that drop of three to four feet, that's usually enough to snap the neck. Uh, there's actually one instance in the United States history in the, uh, an inmate in Louisiana was hanged twice and he lived. He was hanged once and it was with a brand new rope and the knot slipped and he fell out. Bruised neck, but it, it, double indemnity, he could not be tried or re-executed for the same crime. Three days later, he committed a murder. <clears throat> they tried to hang him again, and somehow the rope snapped. And he lived, and again, based on law, they couldn't execute him again. The, according to the story, the man ended up getting saved and completely turned his life around, which you'd think after two near-death experiences like that, that's a really good idea to maybe find Jesus and turn your life around, but he did. But this gallows, 75 feet, there's no recovering from that. None whatsoever. And he died, and the king's wrath was pacified. <clears throat> you have to be really, really upset with somebody to watch them drop from that level of height, and that makes you feel better. Okay, we're talking this guy's extremely upset. You also got to imagine that the king has just found out that uh, Haman's plan was going to eliminate his wife, his new favorite wife, who's also, according to the contest that happened in Esther's chapter 1 and 2, the most beautiful woman in all of the Persian Empire. And this would have eliminated her. He's a little ticked off here, okay? Chapter 8, though, on that day, we're talking the exact same day he's just watched this guy die, did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen? And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. This statement is a little on the unique side. Okay? On that day, did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen? Up until this point, we actually are given a little bit of notes back and forth that Esther lived in a specific place. Okay? Under the Persian Empire, we were introduced to something that sadly in some instances still exist today in the Muslim culture, and we're introduced to a word that we've probably all heard. It's harem, okay? A harem, a group of wives and concubines. They all lived in one conclave. We're talking early form of like a convent or monastery where it was just all of the king's wives and concubines, and they were actually kept fully secluded. By moving the queen into Haman's area, Haman's home... It's making a very bold statement that she is above and beyond all of the other ladies in his harem. This is a very unique move, especially for a, a Persian king. And if you actually read into the context of this, he's also basically using this as a chance to kind of make up for what Haman was about to have done. 
He took Haman's home, the enemy of the Jews, and he put a Jewess in his home. Meaning, you are now safe. This is kind of a precursor to what's to come here later on in this chapter. And he also calls in Mordecai at the end of verse 8. Look at verse 2. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So basically, in this one day, Haman dies, and Mordecai, Haman's number one mortal enemy, is given his job. This is a really bad day for Haman. I, I almost, and this is the vengeful part of my humanity, wish this had been done in reverse. Don't you just a little bit, like the ring had been taken off and given to Mordecai in front of Haman, and then Haman died? Just that, I mean, come on. We, we all have that vengeful moment once in a while, and don't act like you don't. I've watched some of you drive, okay? You, we all have that moment. But if this had been done in reverse, all of us would have been like, yeah, that's right. Get it. But you realize everything that Haman had connived and schemed and lied and worked for to get himself as second in command of the Persian Empire was given to the one man he hated most on the day of his death. Mordecai got this just handed to him. That's kind of how God works. You ever thought about that for a split second? We act like we watch all these, these unsaved people, these people in the world. God's blessing them. We think, oh, look, they're doing so well. Maybe what we're doing is wrong. No, they got what they got now. Our riches come later, and they come instantaneously, and they're so much better. They're so much better because now look at this. The end of the verse, Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. He's got everything Haman ever had and then some because he's also got the king's favor. That's amazing. Now, Haman, Haman unfortunately made some pretty poor decisions. Go to Ecclesiastes. Haman was living his life based on entirely on himself. By the way, the king in this instance was also making some very rash decisions. I find it intriguing at the end of verse 10, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, if you would, that at the end of verse 10 that the king's wrath was pacified. Now, the king was tricked a little bit here to kill all the Jews, but the king didn't really make a very smart decision. If, you, if you've, you've read through the book of Esther as we've studied through it, he just immediately bought this guy's one man's opinion as, okay, that's great, let's sign off on this law. The king should have been ticked off at himself because the king was the one that signed the law, put his seal on it, that doomed his wife to death. Why is he so mad at Haman and not necessarily mad at himself? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, look at verse 13. It says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. God's the judge of all of this. He's going to take care of all of it. And even the people we think are getting away with wrongdoing, God's keeping score. And he's much more accurate on his scorekeeping than we are. If you pay attention in the New Testament, the disciples asked Jesus, how many times are we supposed to forgive? And what was his final answer? 70 times 7, correct? 490 times. If you have counted 490 times to forgive someone, you need a life. You desperately need to move on. Because if you've kept score to where somebody has hurt you 490 times, 
you're doing more damage to yourself than they are to you. Because you're dwelling on this so much that you've kept a record. That's kind of the point that Jesus was trying to get across. Like, I'm keeping score. I've got your back. I've got this covered. Let me handle it. This is, going back to Esther, this is one of those moments where the hand of God is all over this, even though his name is never mentioned. And that's why this book is kind of unique in the Bible. Again, God's name is never mentioned, but over and over and over again, you can see somebody just carefully pulling all of the strings and treating some of these people like Haman, like puppets. And he's just very carefully, all right, you think you got this? Let me just tug this one right here. Yeah, that's what I thought. Hmm. Let's see what happens when I pull this one. Oh, there you go. Now everything's coming to light. Oh, look, let me open the curtain just a little. Because God's got everything under control, even when everything's falling apart. If you think about this, Haman's actually the savior of the Jews in this instance. You ever thought about that? If Haman had never made this plan that God allowed to come to light through Mordecai and Esther, the Jews may have very well been wiped off the map. You ever read the follow-ups to this? We're talking books like Ezra and Nehemiah, where they're finally allowed to go back home. That would have never happened had this not happened. Haman, in his sinful, selfish pride, did the exact opposite of what he set out to do. Because God's got everything under control. And God's pulling all the strings, whether we can see it or not. Look at verse 3. Esther chapter 8, verse number 3. And Esther, we're going to read 3 through 6 here. Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Now this device, this is not the gallows, okay? This is that law, okay? Haman's gone, but the law's still in place. Who signed the law? The king. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, once the king signs a law, it cannot be unwritten. They didn't have parliament or congress to override. Presidential vetoes didn't exist. There was no parliamentary procedure, if you will, to fix a bad law. That did not exist. If it was written, it stayed that way. That's part of the reason we get into the book of Daniel. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, the king had no choice but to follow through with his own law because the law dictated if the king broke the law, then the king is put to death by his own laws. Okay? That was the one, if you will, positive that came out of the legacy of the Persian Empire is the idea that there is no man above the law, okay? which, by the way, is 100% true and thankfully, for the most part, is practiced in our country. Okay? But this right here, this is what the queen is... She's on her on her knees at this guy's feet, weeping, begging him, we got Haman, how are you going to fix the rest of this because I'm still supposed to die at the end of the month. Verse 4, And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and if I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. And let's pause. Going back just a little bit here at the end of verse 3 and verse 4, Esther did not go in front of the king unannounced just once. She did it twice. First time, 
she asked him to come to dinner. The second time, she asked him to fix the problem. But you realize this time around, there's no prayer and fasting. Anybody know why? She'd already done it. God gave her the courage and boldness to do it again. And this time she was a lot more blunt. She just straight up goes in, falls at his feet crying and say, how are you going to fix this? No him and hawing, no, how about you come to dinner? And then how about you come to dinner again another night? God gave her the boldness and the courage to do this a second time. We don't sometimes pay attention to the fact that she didn't go in front of the king once. She did it twice, unannounced. Both times she could have died on the spot. But the second time, she just straight up asked her request. Again, look at the end of verse 4, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. We mentioned this when we were going through chapters 1 and 2. The Persian kingdom at this point extended well beyond what is today modern-day Iraq, actually right into the borders of modern-day Pakistan, northern India, up into Turkey, and then actually at this point was right on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, right across from Greece, all the way down into Egypt itself, covered most of Saudi Arabia and then everything in between. We're talking a massive kingdom. At the time, they were the largest world empire that had existed. At the time, they were about to be eclipsed by the Greeks under Alexander the Great in about 100 years. And then after that, the Romans. And then later, the Mongolian Empire had the largest land empire in all of history. But this is massive. There are 127 provinces. Think of those like states. If you actually did a size comparison, this is about 75% of the continental United States. Okay, this is a humongous kingdom, and this decree has gone out to all of them that anyone who is of Jewish background is supposed to be killed. This actually gives us an idea of the extent of how far spread the Jews were at the end of their captivity in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Okay, this is how far flung they've gone. You realize that in its day, Israel was only slightly larger than New Jersey, at one of its largest points in history under King Solomon was slightly larger than the state of New Jersey. And that group of people is now flung all over the known world. This is, this is a big deal. By the way, an extermination on this scale has only been attempted three other times in all of history. Three that I can figure out. The Nazis, Joseph Stalin, and Mao Zedong of China. By the way, Hitler didn't just, wasn't just responsible for killing Jews. He's responsible for over 30 million deaths. Joseph Stalin, almost 50 million, most of which were his own people. And Mao Zedong's estimates are 80 to 100 million of his own people. That's an exterminate. And we're talking massive. Russia's huge. Vast areas of people. That's the level of extermination that's supposed to happen at this point in time, according to the timeline of the book of Esther, in a matter of days. That's when this is all supposed to take place. So her fear for, I can't go in front of the king because he might kill me, that's gone now. Because timeline is, time is of the essence right here. Look at verse 6. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? That's a unique statement. Look at how it's phrased. How can I endure to see the evil 
Or how can I endure to see the destruction? How is she guaranteed that she's going to watch all this? You realize she's believing at this point she's going to be left alive. How? Anybody ever thought about that for a split second? At some point, somewhere, the king must have given her some assurance that she was safe. Otherwise, that statement doesn't make sense. How can I? She's making a statement, I may be the last one left. How am I going to be able to handle that? So somewhere, the Bible does not give us, this is bishology, okay? Meaning, I'm, I'm speculating at best here. But based on the wording of that verse, the king must have given her some assurance that she was safe. Are we okay with that? I mean, I think that's a fairly logical conclusion based on the wording of that. But it's an interesting idea here. Look down at verse 7. Like I said, I'm going to attempt to finish this chapter. Famous last words, if you're a member of the Bish family. Okay? Uh, and then the king, Ahasuerus, said unto Esther the queen, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. And him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews, and to the lieutenants and the deputies and the rulers of the provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia, and hundred and twenty and seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their language, and according to their language. Okay, this is a very long statement right here, but the king, the king did something actually incredible and remarkable. He gave Mordecai and Esther a blank check. Okay, go back. Behold, I've given unto Esther, this is verse 7, the house of Haman. They've hanged him. Verse 8, write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring. He literally told Mordecai and Esther, you write whatever you think is necessary to get this law reversed. I'll sign it and seal it. I don't even care what it says. Guys, that's insane. Okay, that's, that's literally a blank check. They could have gone crazy here, and not only are the Jews not being killed, but all their neighbors need to give them all their money. I mean, they could have just gone nuts here. And then he goes off on telling them how they're going to do this. And what I find intriguing is verse 9. Esther 8, 9, by the way, if you're like me and you like weird little facts, Esther 8, 9 is the longest verse in your Bible. I don't know if any of you knew that. It might be worth marking, and it is, a, it is a lengthy one here. This gives us an idea of the sheer scope of what's about to happen here. The king's scribes, must, by the way, must have been an incredible group of human beings. Because if you read the end of this here, 127 provinces, it goes from India to Ethiopia, and unto every people after their language. It's estimated that the Persian kingdom under Ahasuerus had somewhere around 300 languages spoken. That's an army of scribes that were very good at their job. And Mordecai's just like standing in this room with these group of people. All right, here's what we're going to say. And they're going to town. And as soon as this has been perfected and nailed down, the king signs these, seals these. 
and they are sent all over the world, all over the known world. This right here was possibly one of the fastest passed and communicated laws in the ancient world. And by the way, that's historical fact, just based on the speed with which they take care of this, because we're given specific dates in verse 9, and all of this has to happen by specific dates that were given to us earlier in the book. This may have been, in the ancient world, one of the fastest passed and communicated laws in all of ancient history, which is based on the size and the sheer scope and the amount of languages and the communication required. And if you think of the lack of communication skills and abilities at the time, this was incredible. This was a, we're not talking smoke signals here, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking like ancient Pony Express. They sent people on the fastest vehicle, animals that they had and sent them Persia, okay? This particular kingdom, the farthest reaches are somewhere around 1,500 miles away and that had to be done on horseback, camel, or foot. And they had to communicate this as quickly as humanly possible. That's, that's an amazing speed, okay? Drop down to verse 10. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name, and sealed it with the king's ring, and sent letters by posts on horseback, and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries. That would also be other camels, if you will, or other species of camels. So they've got guys going on all different types of <laughs> vehicles, if you will. Um, to be honest with you, this actually is an intriguing breakdown. I know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weird person. The way I read some of the Bible sometimes, I take it, number one, literally, and if you pay attention to the way this is broken down, horses are incredibly fast but have very, very short longevity, 20 to 30 miles. And if it run at full speed, anything above about 35 miles, the horse can die. That was all of his short term. He's getting that out as quickly as possible to all of the nearest neighbors. Mules are not near as fast but can go for days on end without stopping. That's the next group of people. Then he's got camels and young dromedaries. Camels can go sometimes upwards of 10 months without taking a drink of water. That means he's sending these out to the far reaches. They are not near as speedy. By the way, camels can move at about 25 miles an hour, so not that much slower than a horse, but their ability to run unexhausted for extended periods of time is absolutely insane in the animal kingdom. By the way, camels, weirdly enough, have one of the longest abilities to keep moving without stopping of anybody other than humans. In fact, Matt, basically, okay? Camels can almost outrun Matt, and that's about it. Uh, he's, he's top, was 112 is the farthest you've done? Legitimately, a camel can go about 100 miles without having to stop at all for a rest. So Matt is better than a camel. If you ever need a ride somewhere really far, take a Matt, okay? Um, that was a weird thing to say out loud, okay? But this kind of gives us an idea. By the way, to give a weird New Testament example, Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He's covering home, close to home, and everywhere else based on the vehicle that they're taking. Does that add up? Does that concept make sense there? Okay, look at verse 11. Wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy to slay and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. The king couldn't change his law. These Jews were to be put to death. So Mordecai's plan that the king signed off was, 
Okay, there's a specific day we're all supposed to die. The king's now giving you permission to fight for your life, and anybody you kill, you keep their stuff. This is interesting. This is Second Amendment rights right here. They were about to make a big stand. Verse 12. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all the people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves to their enemies. This was written in the third month, and they're given until the twelfth month to be ready to prepare themselves. They're given nine months. Think about that. You're given nine months for the fight of your life. You're spending nine months learning everything you could ever learn about combat. Right? I mean, you're, you're, going, in, you're going to town. You're, you're learning how to sharpen your sword, your knife. You're training your kids on stuff you would have never taught them before. Because it even talks about the women and the little ones. You got little kids armed to the teeth, like tiny little mercenaries ready to go here. I could see Liam doing that. Finn would be great at that. I, I'm pretty sure Finn should never be around sharp objects because he'd hurt the rest of us. Hey, we got, I mean, I could just imagine arming our preschool. That'd be amazing. And gee, it'd be terrifying, hey? As excited as she is, you give her sharp things and you're toast, man. But this is crazy. These families are given nine months. Can you imagine the change in family priorities at this point? You're, not you're done raising your kids to be good citizens and to follow Old Testament law like they've been doing for generations. You're now stopping all of that to teach your kids how to fight. Teach your kids how to take a stand. Teach your kids how to take a hit. This, this changed Jewish parenting for a time. We don't sometimes read through that and think that concept, but that's exactly what it did. This is the weirdest twist on Jewish families they've probably ever experienced. We're not teaching them to turn the other cheek, to love thy neighbor as thyself. We're teaching them, if he hits you, cut him. If that dude comes near him, near you, kill him. Why? Because we get his stuff. And this is all in one day. They've made movies about this kind of stuff. One day. We're, we're about to, this is nuts. Look at verse 13. The copy of the writing for a commandment was given to every province, was published unto all the people, and the, the, the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves to their enemies. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment. And the decree was given at Shushan, the palace. So, just like I mentioned before, the camels and mules are being sent out first because they're going the farthest, okay? They've got to reach, like I said, Pakistan, which, is to, which was and is part of northern India. They've got to go all the way to Egypt and Ethiopia. They've, they've got the farthest to go. So, they're being sent out. And the decree was given at Shushan, the palace. Shushan, the palace was not just one castle, this was an entire city that estimates put it at somewhere between three and 400,000 people, not counting the outlying areas where you could guess by word of mouth the information is going to travel relatively quickly. Uh, even in today's digital world, word of mouth is one of the best ways to advertise and share information. Now, granted, it typically has the ability to morph and change over time. But can you imagine, everybody already has been told and at least notified of the law that Jews are all supposed to die on one specific day. 
but now the entire kingdom's ready for battle royale nine months later. The king let Mordecai write a law that could have started a civil war. The king let Mordecai write a law that could have ripped his kingdom in half. Does that give you an idea of how bad he felt that this passed in the first place? Remember, he offered Esther up to half his kingdom. He's willing to sacrifice half his kingdom to save her. By the way, that's an intriguing piece of love story we don't normally get out of Esther. He was willing to give up most of what he'd earned because of her. You take that how you like, but it's an intriguing thought. Mordecai, verse 15, went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold, with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Mordecai, according to earlier in the book of Esther, and by the way, very likely may have been the author of the book of Esther, based on some of the information that we're given in here, Mordecai spent a majority of his life and his career where? Remember from earlier on in the book? Say that again? At the king's gate. He wasn't inside. Mordecai was a outlier. He was right on that edge all the time. He was doing right, doing his job, doing what he was supposed to, but he was never part of that inner circle, and now he's fully decked out in royal apparel. We're supposed to be strangers in this world, outliers. Be ye separate. But there's one day we're going to get that royal apparel, that crown of gold, and we're officially royalty even though Lord knows we don't deserve it. By far. This book is an intriguing allegory for the Christian life. It looks like Satan's going to win Haman over and over and over again. But at some point, God comes in and he loses so bad, so badly. In one very instantaneous fell swoop, he's toast. And we're given royal status. Guys, that's amazing. We don't deserve that in the slightest. Think about the junk you've gotten into and done and possibly even this morning. You, don't, you and I don't deserve to be treated like royalty. But that's our eternity that's waiting for us. The people that are making billions of dollars being idiots today, they're getting the royal status now and it ends in fire. We may not live like that now, but we get eternity. I'll take that any day of the week. That's amazing return on investment right there. Verse 16, we are almost done. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. This is an intriguing phrase right here. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. Okay? You realize they're still nine months out from this hardcore attack that's about to happen because the law says so but they're happy about it. Therefore, I pleasure in my infirmities, in my persecutions. Remember, Paul wrote on stuff like that repeatedly, and I know I'm paraphrasing there, 
but this is the concept that we're getting right here. They had light and gladness, joy and honor. They're about to have the fight for their lives, and they're excited about it because it's a chance. Hope. All of that verse, that verse 16, I, I'm a, I tend to write in my Bible little notes to myself that's hope. These people finally had hope. Do you know at this point, they've been in captivity for well over seven decades? Meaning, outside of potentially people like Daniel, there were very few of the original captives left alive. These are all second and third generation captives that are given hope for the very first time in their lives. That's intriguing. And that, that actually bleeds through to the last two chapters of this book. You see a complete change in attitude, a complete change in writing, actually, because it's more of a positive. There's more upbeat. If you read through chapters, especially one through seven, there's a lot of negativity in there. You can almost tell, and again, if Mordecai was, in fact, the author, it makes a lot of sense. Mordecai may have gone through levels of almost depression or grief in there as he's writing some of this, like, I can't believe this guy's trying to kill all of us. I can't believe, why does he hate me? Do you get where I'm going with some of those thoughts that are written in here? And then at the tail end of chapter 8 and then into 9 and 10, it's almost like it just takes this positive upswing. By the way, that's the same way that happens with us in our lives. We live without God, and it just gradually goes downhill until we meet the Savior, and then it goes right back up. It's called hope. Hope is all you need to survive. Hope is all you need to keep moving forward when you're at your darkest, bleakest day. You need hope. Thankfully, Jesus provides that. If you turn with me to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and we're almost done here. Philippians 1, verse 6. Famous verse, you're probably somewhat familiar with it. It says, being confident of this very thing, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's hope. If you're in this room today and you are saved, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior and you know for sure you're on your way to heaven, he's doing something in your life and in your heart and he's going to keep working until Jesus returns. The big problem with that is you have to allow him to work in you. Because we have the ability to shut that off. We have the ability to let sin, let our own selfish pride, let our own wants and desires take over. And his work slows. It doesn't stop. Because he made a promise here. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. His work doesn't stop. We just have a tendency to slow it down. Think Waterbury. That place has been under construction for, what, 24 years? Somebody is running a sick racket over in Waterbury, okay? If it's the same construction company that's been doing that most of my life, that dude's a genius, okay? They got it done, I think, once for, what, like seven months and then realized they did it wrong? How do you do that? Aren't you professionals, okay? They, the work has continued, but it's slowed because somebody keeps making mistakes. That's you and I. God's still doing work. Things are still flowing. Blessings are still flowing. We have this tendency to bottleneck and slow it down with our own junk. Go back to Esther and we're almost done. Verse 16, the Jews 
at light and gladness and joy and honor. Verse 17, and in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Okay? In the Jewish law, you actually had the ability to become a Jew, a proselyte, if you will, by going through this entire process. It included circumcision, and you had to study the law, and all these different factors. They got a bunch of Jewish converts over this. Because they're now, according to this, the fear of the Jews fell upon them. The king gave them permission to wipe out any enemy that attacked them. And now their numbers are bigger than ever. Look at every persecution of the church that's ever existed. And we usually start with Nero around the time of the Apostle Paul as the first true persecution of the New Testament church. Every persecution that's happened, there were 10 under the Roman Empire, of the Holy Roman Empire that was the, the successor to that. There were at least 11 true persecutions of the church, and they've technically never stopped just under different names. The church has always grown. Because God's word will not return void. We sometimes act like bad circumstances and bad things are going to distract from God's work. No, they've only ever amplified it and make it better. The Jews went from being a minority to a larger group due to this one law. You realize how many more people learned about the coming Messiah because of this law. That's amazing. Haman didn't not only get, didn't get what he wanted, there were more Jews after his death than there were before. Because God's got everything under control. Our world's a mess and getting worse. God's got everything under control. He's pulling all the strings. We got a puppet in the presidency, but God's got the, God's got the strings to that guy too. I don't care what you think or if you believe in the Illuminati, you're nuts. Because somewhere in the background, God's got that marionette and he's pulling all the strings because he built the whole thing anyways. So don't worry, don't fret. There's hope. There's always hope.